Tony's going to continue the sermon series in Mark. This sermon is called Crown of Thorns. It's from Mark 15, 15 through 24. Now here's the scripture and what it says. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! And again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they laid him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, were passing by on his way in front of the country. And they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Steve. In the run-up to Easter, we have returned to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we looked at that last year, uh, took a break for Christmas to celebrate Christ's birth, and now we're back to Mark, uh, the final chapters of Mark, which are all about Jesus on his way to the cross. Mark, of course, as we learned, is based on Peter's experiences and memories of Jesus, uh, Peter, an illiterate fisherman, writes in a very direct and vivid way about what he saw and heard uh, in the run-up to the crucifixion. And Mark is, of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, perhaps the clearest, most vivid, the most direct record of what happened. We saw last Sunday that uh, Jesus has been betrayed. He went... Uh, after the Last Supper, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples to pray. There, Judas betrayed him to the Roman soldiers. He was uh, taken to, uh, first of all, to the chief priest's house where they confronted him and accused him, and then he was taken to Pilate, where Pilate tried to have him released. Pilate didn't want uh, Jesus, he didn't want to get involved in Jewish politics. He didn't want to crucify Jesus. He, he would rather have Barabbas, a criminal and, and rebel, crucified. But the crowd wanted Jesus. And we saw last Sunday, they shouted out, crucify him, crucify him. And so Pilate, afraid of a riot, gives them Barabbas. And here, verse 15, we take up the story. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. Jesus had been hailed as king, as Messiah, when he entered Jerusalem. This is what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. The crowd came and um, welcomed him riding on a donkey as the returning king and Messiah. 
But now the crowd, the mob, want him crucified. And so they choose Barabbas over Jesus. And Pilate hands him over. That means it was Pilate's decision as representative of the Roman Empire. It is Pilate who legally condemns Jesus, and Jesus will die under the law of Rome by crucifixion, as was the practice and and habit of Rome. He had Jesus flogged. This is a technical term here for a, a terrifying Roman device. In Latin, the flagellum. It was a braided leather whip plaited with pieces of lead and bone. And the naked prisoner was bound often to a pole or just hung. And a group of soldiers, each with a whip, stood around and flogged them, flogged without limit until the entire surface of the skin was shredded and muscle and bone were visible. This was a terrible punishment, and oftentimes prisoners would just die at this beating. It was not a trivial thing to go through. It was a source of a lot of death by itself. The soldiers led Jesus away. He would have been a mess at this point, barely recognizable. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. So here we are in Jerusalem, the Jewish capital, but Israel and Jerusalem were under the rule of Rome, and Pilate was the Roman administrator. And so within Herod's palace, Herod was the king installed by the Romans. Whenever Pilate, the representative of Rome, showed up, He took over part of the palace, and it became the headquarters of Rome, the Praetorium. So this is a Praetorium guard. These are elite soldiers. These are representatives of Rome's imperial power. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to crawl out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to them. Hail, King of the Jews. The charge against Jesus was that he was claiming to be King of the Jews. The Romans didn't care about Jesus as Messiah, Jesus as religious leader. That was... uh, a local squabble amongst, from their perspective, just the the Jewish people. For Rome, the threat was always rebellion in one of their provinces. They had installed Herod as the king over the Jewish nation, and so anybody else claiming to be king was potentially a rebel. And so what they're doing here is mocking the Praetorian God, mocking Jesus' pretensions to the throne as they saw it. Bloodied, naked, and vulnerable before them, Jesus does not look like much of a threat, and they feel free to mock him. It's striking, though, that as you read this as a Christian, you recognize that their mocking and jeering, their cruelty, their pretend bowing and paying homage, is actually foreshadowing a reality. This actually is the king. Paul, in his letter to the Philippian church, explains Jesus' journey this way. 
Jesus humbled himself becoming, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. So though... They surely don't know it. In their mocking, there is an element of truth. The one they mock truly is all the things that they claim to be. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put, on his own clothes, put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alex and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country and they forced him to carry the cross. It was the Roman practice to have the condemned carry their own torture device, the cross. This wouldn't have been a full cross. It would have been the cross beam, sometimes tied to the victim. And the victim would then be forced to carry that cross beam up to where there was a pole uh, with a slot or some kind of binding where that crossbeam would then be hoisted up and slotted onto the pole. But Jesus is shredded. He has just been brutally beaten. And he's unable, he's too weak to carry that beam by himself. And so this random bystander is forcibly enlisted by the soldiers. Now Mark doesn't often identify people. He rarely gives us the names of people. And the fact that this random uh, stranger is named, that we get where he's from, we get his name, and we get his relations. Either he was an eyewitness who told this story to many people, or he became part of the early church, and that's how everybody knew him, and Mark expected people to recognize him. But this was a person converted or at least intensely challenged, transformed by this experience of walking alongside Jesus. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. The Talmud rec uh, records that there was a tradition in Jerusalem of the women of Jerusalem to give uh, a drink mixed with some kind of narcotic to those who were condemned to die, uh, based on uh, a verse in Proverbs. Let beer be for those who are perishing, wine for those who are in anguish. And so they were giving this drink an attempt to dull Jesus' pain, to make it more bearable. Why doesn't he take it? We don't know. But he had said that he wouldn't take wine until he took it again in heaven at the, the feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb. Also, Jesus went to suffer completely on the cross. Perhaps he wanted a clear head. Perhaps he needed to experience every single piece of misery that that cross had to offer him. Whatever the reason, he was not dull when he went there. He was fully awake, fully alive. He experienced every single thing that happened to him. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. 
They cast lots to see who would benefit from his death, ignoring the man in agony above them. All they're worried about is what they're going to get out of it, what they're going to make out of it. So what should we think about this? You know, in many ways, this is the most familiar story in the Bible, Jesus Christ crucified. But when you begin to read the details of it, when you begin to think about the actual reality of it, how should we think about it as Christians? Well, I'd say there were two things, certainly two things that I respond to in this. The first is more theological, more biblical, and the second is more personal. But first, what does that, this have to teach us theologically? Well, in the first book of the Bible, in the Old Testament, the first book of the Bible is Genesis. The word means beginnings, origins, first things. And we learn that when God created the world, it was good, even very good. And specifically, we learn that there were no thorns in the world that God created. And yet, the Roman soldiers didn't have any trouble finding thorns to make Jesus' crown. Why? Because that good creation, as described in Genesis, had fallen. Adam and Eve, the first human beings, used the freedom and the blessings that God had given them to disobey and rebel against him. The technical term for rebelling against God is sin. That is, making something other than God the aim or the meaning or the purpose of your life. And without God at the center, nothing can be truly good. In fact, in that rebellion, all the problems of the world began. The blessed world became cursed. Genesis 3 says, Cursed is the ground because of you. This is Adam and Eve. Through painful toil, you'll eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. Thorns don't represent sin. Thorns are the consequence of human sin, the fruit of human sin, a sign of the curse. And so when these Roman soldiers, in mockery, create this crown of thrones, surely they don't recognize it. But what they are doing is creating a vivid symbol of the curse of sin being placed on Jesus' head. Jesus wears a crown of thorns <clears throat> because he was becoming our Lord. That is not the glorious Lord of a perfect and beautiful creation, but the Lord of the lost, of the dying, of this cursed and broken world. Now that might sound a little dramatic, a little overcooked. Many of us are going to eat corned beef uh, and celebrate St. Patrick's Day today. How bad can that be? Lost and dying, this cursed and broken world. I went to uh, the UNICEF website this week. It said that 25,000 children under five die every day 
from malnutrition, which is treatable. There's plenty of food in the world. From pneumonia, eminently treatable. And diarrhea, eminently treatable. 25,000 a day. That's one child every two seconds. And if you've ever met somebody who's lost a child, you'll recognize the pain and suffering represented by that statistic. It's a statistic beyond human comprehension. All is not right with this world. This world is broken. This world is not as it should be. This world has thorns and thistles. Even all of us who live relatively good lives, what's our death rate? 100%. Nobody gets out of this world alive. It is a broken world. It is not the way it is meant to be. And when Jesus Christ wears that crown, crown of thorns, sign of the curse, when he takes the curse onto himself, when he becomes Lord of the curse, he becomes Lord of this broken world. He takes it onto him. And not theoretically, the broken world that you and I actually live in. He becomes our Lord. Not the Lord of shiny, happy people filled with love and groovy vibes, but Lord of the lost, Lord of the dying, Lord of the cursed. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in the letter he wrote to a church he had started in Galatia. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. That is the theological reason Jesus came into the world and went to the cross. He was coming into the world to undo the curse, to redeem the broken world, to unwind the consequences of human sin and put everything in reverse. And to do that, he had to become Lord of all that was ugly and miserable and evil and bad. And that's what, why he put that thorn on. That's why he went to the cross. And they crucified him. See, this is the very center of Christianity. Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. If you believe that, you're a Christian. If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. Clear-cut, clean, basic Christian theology. But Christianity is not just theology. It is not just biblical knowledge. Christianity is a relationship. A relationship with the God who went to that cross for us, which makes the crucifixion personal, makes the cross personal. And I think that is the element of the Christmas story, uh, not the Christmas story, the Easter story, that makes... Well, to me, it makes it the hardest of all. You know, as part of my preparation for Easter, I've been trying to pray through the gospel accounts of Easter and Jesus in his last days. But I constantly stumble when I get to the cross. I've been trying to think about it all week. What is it that I'm stumbling at? 
Well, when I first became a Christian, I loved prayer. I loved worship. Praying to God was easy. What a privilege. Instead of navel-gazing and worrying about myself, I could suddenly talk to the boss. Reading the Bible and learning from other Christians, learning to pray and to worship was a wonderful, wonderful gift, and it felt easy and natural and right. But I realized, and I learned this from other Christians and from the Bible, that it's easy to pray for God in the abstract, this sort of distant figure. But as soon as you start reading the Bible, as soon as you start particularly reading the Gospels, God is not this distant figure, this philosophical concept, this idea, this abstraction. God becomes personal and real, and you have to have a relationship. And not with just a generic God, but the triune God of Christianity. Now, praying to God as Father, I found that very easy. It's easy to think of a God as Father as somebody taking care of you. Although, for a long time, I prayed to my Father. It took a long time to learn to pray to our Father. My selfish, withered little heart did not like to share God, and it took me a while to recognize that Christianity was a communal enterprise. But I got there. My God turned into our God. And I could pray to the Holy Spirit, you know, the riches of a triune God and the power of the Spirit. And I could pray to Jesus, Jesus my Lord, easy, Jesus my King, easy to worship, easy to look up to, no problem. But then, if you read the Bible, you recognize that Christianity is about the family of God. God our Father makes us brothers and sisters with each other and with Jesus, the Son of God. That was harder. It's the implication of the Lord's Prayer. You know, Jesus teaches to pray to our Father. He's including himself in that. He's saying we're siblings, part of the same family. And we are children of God. It should be easy to pray to God as brother. I find that hard. Brothers, in my experience, are not wonderful creatures. And uh, the idea of Jesus as a brother is just too close, too intimate. I went to a uh, prayer retreat in California, and they spent the whole weekend trying to teach us to think of God as Jesus, as our friend. Pray to your friend Jesus, your buddy Jesus. And it was, I rebelled against it. It seemed way, way too presumptuous. It's like calling Jesus dude or something. It's, it's, it just feels blasphemous to me. The intimacy, that drawing closer, made it harder and harder. How about Jesus as servant? Servant of all of us. The Bible says that he is. This is where Peter rebelled. In the Bible, there's a story where Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. And when he comes to Peter, Peter says, I can't do it. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash your feet, you have no part with me. Jesus was demanding that Peter recognize him 
as servant of all. And Peter rebelled. It's one thing to worship a divine God and pray to a divine God. But as Jesus reveals the true nature of God, step by step, story by story, as he gets closer and closer, it becomes harder and harder. And what do you do with a Jesus on the cross? Shredded, broken body, hanging by nails. How do you pray or worship then? That bloodied, miserable, broken figure. How do you pray and worship? How do you deal with that? Most don't. It's indecent. It's appalling. Most look away. Most deny. Most try not to think about it. And yet, here he is in the gospel, on the cross, for us. That's what Easter is all about. I think as Christians, we've got to keep looking. You've got to keep looking at the cross and dealing with the reality that is being revealed there, appalling as it is. And what do you see if you don't turn away? What if you keep looking? What if you keep trying to fathom what it means? What if you keep trying to understand? After all, it's barely a man up there anymore. Something ugly, something dreadful. Nothing and nobody you could easily respect or desire or worship. A broken something at the very limits of human experience. Misery, death. Far, far away from anything that we can hopefully ever experience. How should we think about it? There's a Christian tradition, an ancient tradition, which seeks to engage directly the reality of God in prayer, in worship, to experience God in all his reality and his fullness and its richness. And people who go on such a journey, seekers after such a relationship, all report that there is a moment, there is a period, there is a time on that journey of darkness, of absence, of void. It's when all our ideas about God are revealed as idolatrous conceptions, where the confidence and knowledge that we think we have is stripped away. It's where we come to the end of human experience. And the only thing that remains is a yearning, a hope, a faith in the reality of the God who is out there. You'll oftentimes hear it referred to as the dark night of the soul. Paul had it. David had it. Psalm 63. You God are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water. David, a man after God's own heart, yearned to know God directly. Yearned to know the God who could go to that appalling extremity for him. Now, David never saw the cross, but he knew the God who would go to the cross. And if you read his Psalms, 
You recognize that. What happens when we go on that journey? When we engage with Jesus on the cross for us, when we wrestle with the reality of it, when we pray and contemplate Jesus on the cross, what does it reveal about us? What does it reveal about him? Mark tells the story quickly, but Luke records something that happened at that moment when Jesus was crucified. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him, Jesus, there. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So yes, there is a broken body up there, shredded and ugly and appalling, but not a broken spirit and not a broken heart. What you have is someone who still cares about others, who still desires to forgive. And more than anything else, what you see, what you get a glimpse of, is this unquenchable, inexhaustible, exquisite, uncreated, and pure love. It pours out of Jesus right there at that extremity. John, who was perhaps closest to Jesus, says this. This is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So here's my challenge, my suggestion. I feel like I'm on this journey. This journey to try to understand, or understand is the right word. I don't think we ever understand. Come to terms with or encounter Jesus on the cross for me, for you, for us. And I think it is a journey. I don't think you get there easily. There's a Spanish friar, Juan Alvarez, and he fell in love with God through prayer and contemplating the cross, Jesus on the cross. He changed his name, in fact, to John of the Cross. And he wrote an amazing book about how you, how you get closer to God, how you, how you begin to think about God on the cross for you in the form of Jesus. And he summarizes it in a poem. It's called Noche Oscura, Dark Night. It's where we get the idea of the dark night of the soul. And the last verses say this. He went on this journey. He contemplated the cross. He faced all the doubt and confusion and all the appallingness of Jesus on the cross for him. And the final lines of his poem, his book is based on this poem, are this. All my senses suspended... I lost myself. I lay my face against my love. Everything stopped. My cares were left between the lilies, all forgotten. He's talking about an ecstatic, direct experience of the revelation of God's love. Seen most clearly, 
right there on the cross. Now, this Easter season, I'm going to try to go on this journey. I'm thinking that between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, I'm going to try fasting and prayer, and I'm going to contemplate the cross. If any of you are interested, I'd love to talk to you about this afterwards, and maybe we can form a group of people who want to do this journey together. And the purpose behind it is not theological knowledge, not a deeper understanding of what the Bible says, but an attempt to make the reality of God on the cross in the, form, in the person of Jesus, to experience, to seek after, to hunger for that revelation, that direct encounter with the love revealed there. Easter can be about Easter bunnies and Easter eggs. It can be about giving up chocolate, giving up the internet, goodness knows what. But I think it should be about this. It should be coming to terms with the one who went to the cross for you. Coming to terms with that reveals about you and your sin and the darkness within you and what it reveals about God's love. I think it's where we're going to find the essence of the gospel. Anyway, something to think about, right? Easter's a month away. Right now I'm going to end with prayer and then we're going to go to the table. But think about what I've said and think about talking to me afterwards. Lord, we thank you that though we, though we don't understand it, though it will always be a mystery, that you revealed yourself, you revealed your love, you revealed your heart, you revealed your essence to us on that cross. Bloodied and broken, you continue to love. You continue to forgive. You continue to care. And Lord, that is our only hope. Our hope that no matter what we do, no matter what we've done, no matter what happens in this world, you will be faithful to us in love. Lord, we thank you that we can hope. We thank you that we can have faith in you. We thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name. Amen.